0: Father, we praise you. We know you have our back. And we thank you that we can rest in you, that we can actually sleep because you never sleep, and we can trust in you. And someday, you're going to set everything right, and we look forward to that day. But until then, help us to live for you and teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Zechariah. I don't have anything on my screen. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, page 539 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Zechariah, verse by verse and today we're at the second part of god is is a jealous god uh, i wanted to show a video clip though okay so let's let's watch this <laughs> Some fancy riding, I just lay. Hey, ride on, Pluto! Uh, no, no. oh, uh, oh, yeah, man, do your no, stuff. Oh, we get your psychic. You know, Zolla, they don't make cars like they used to. Well, I certainly hope not, Popeye. Hey, get a load of that clown in that ancient antique chariot. Here's where I get me some kicks, harassing them hicks. <laughs> hey, Barney Oldsfield, how about a little game of chicken? The first guy that moves out of the way loses. <laughs> oh, my. what kind of a game is chicken? I ain't sure, Zoller. He'll just pass the wickets. Go on, <laughs> I never said I I do have the whole rest of the that particular cartoon, and uh, after the service we'll be I'm just kidding. Okay. Everybody hates a bully, don't they? Except the bully, probably, I guess, but, but everybody hates a bully. God hates bullies especially when they're messing with his people. Uh, Last week, we saw that God's jealousy moves him to have compassion on his people. This week, we will see that God's jealousy moves him to punish his people's enemies. Now, I want to remind you of our definition of the jealousy of God because it is different than uh, what we're normally used to when we hear the word jealousy. And God's jealousy is his passionate commitment to that which rightfully belongs to him, whether it is his glory that cannot be shared with another, his right to be worshiped as the one true God, or the affections and devotion of his people. And that's specifically the last part is what we're seeing in our passage. Uh, His affections and devotion to his people has moved him, what we saw last week, to have compassion on his people, and now here this week we'll see to punish his people's enemies. Let's read our passage, Zechariah 1, 18 through 21. Then I looked up and saw four horns. So I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, What are they coming to do? He replied, these are the horns that scattered Judah so no one could raise his head. These craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cut off the horns of the nations that raised a horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now, if you remember, uh, we've seen last week that Zechariah is going to be giving eight different visions this Uh, genre that he's using is an apocalyptic genre. So he's got word pictures and so forth. So uh, we need to look and see what is he saying with these pictures of the four horns and the four craftsmen in this passage. So let's look at the first one, the four horns. In verses 18 and 19, he mentions these four horns. Again, uh, Stephen Rummage explains uh, why the horn. What does he mean by a horn? Uh, Beginning in verse 18, Zechariah receives a second vision from the Lord, this one consisting of four horns and four craftsmen. Among the Jews, the horns of an animal were a measure of that animal's power. We have the same idea today. The avid hunter goes after the 12-point buck. The rancher prizes the longhorn bull because horns represent strength in the animal world. The horn was also used figuratively in the Old Testament to symbolize political or military strength. And so that's what we're seeing here. These are military forces that were opposed to the Jewish people, to God's, opposed to God's people. They were the enemies of God. Okay, uh, specifically, remember Zechariah, the people have returned back to Jerusalem after the exile. So the Babylonians were the ones who were the bullies, the mean guys. They came in, destroyed Jerusalem, exiled the people up to Babylon. Then Persia, 70 years later, returned them home, but they're still in exile. At least that's how it feels to them because they're under this domination of the Persians. And so we see this, the enemies, Babylonians, etc., cetera, uh, are these four horns. Now, a question that we... So I've answered the first question, who are the horns? Okay, the enemies of God. By the way, when it says four horns... Four is typically meaning uh, to represent all of. Uh, they use the word four for the four uh, points on a compass, north, south, east, west, the four corners of the earth. So they're, they're spe- using that term to mean all of, so all of God's enemies. But why did God allow them to scatter his people? because that's what they did in the first place, right? And that's what happened to them with this exile. But why would God do that? I don't have time to read all the passages of Scripture that I'd like. I wish we could have like a couple hours, but, you know, here we go. Uh, so, we're, But let me just summarize 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 18. In that passage, it describes why God allowed his people to be punished, because of the great sins that they were involved in. And we see in that uh, summary three major sins that stick out. So if you go back and read that perhaps later today, 2 Kings 17, 7 through 18, three major sins. And the first one is theological amnesia. You see, they were supposed to know what was right and what was wrong. They were given the Ten Commandments, weren't they? Okay, and they knew they weren't supposed to get involved in idolatry and all the other things. And so at first, that Second Kings passage first addresses how they forgot, but it was a willful forgetting, theological amnesia, and it was because they didn't stay in the Word of God see, the king was supposed to have a copy of God's word and read it every day. That was the requirement of the king. That was the requirement of the king, and then then the the priests were supposed to teach the people God's word as well, but they didn't do that, and so the people forgot, and the theological amnesia comes, okay? By the way, as God's people, we are prone to this very same sin, aren't we? Theological amnesia. The cure is read the Bible every day. Every Christian, read it every day. Get involved in a church that preaches the Bible. Go to a life group where you have conversational Bible study so you're digging into the Word. Because I guarantee you, if you're not... Regularly in the word of God, you are regularly in the world, right? Okay? It is going to affect you adversely unless you're digging into God's word. You're going to start thinking like the world. You're going to fall into the sin of theological amnesia. It's just what happens, okay? So dig into God's word every day. The second sin that they were involved in that that passage brings out is polytheism. They had begun to embrace that there are many gods, not just one God. Even though God made it very clear, there are no other gods beside me, that he is the only one true God, monotheism is the word for that, Uh, they began to embrace other gods. And you might wonder, and especially idolatry, you might wonder why would they be so prone to idolatry? Well, all the surrounding nations were all... Uh, involved in idolatry. So if the world's doing it, quite often we end up, you know, as God's people start doing whatever the world's doing. So, you know, we can relate to that, can't we? But that was probably what was going on. But also the reason why idolatry, because with idolatry, it was actually a means of controlling the gods. You see, you could put the God over here and then sin over here. It was a means of controlling the gods instead of allowing God to be in control. We all want to do that, right? We all want to make up our own rules. We all want to, I don't want to follow God. Well, idolatry uh, works that way. I remember I went uh, to, uh, when I was in London, I went to a a Hindu temple and uh, got the tour. They gave me the tour of it. And then they asked me this question. I thought it was really strange. They said, would you like for us to wake up the gods for you. True, okay? And I looked at him and I go, sure. <laughs> you know, you know, and, uh, and what they had was all the different idols in the Hindu temple. They had these boxes over the idols and they had the picture of the idols on the boxes, but then they, to wake them up, they just removed the box over the idol and then there was the idol, awake okay, I thought, wow, <laughs> okay, that's, that's, see how idolatry, you can control the gods that way, and, 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 and so the people, they wanted to be in control instead of surrendering to God. Well, the third sin that is mentioned in that passage is syncretism. Syncretism is, see, the Israelites didn't get rid of Yahweh as their God, they simply brought in other aspects from the other religions and mixed them all together to make their religion. This is what's called syncretism. You know, some people think, well, why not? Why not take the best of all the different religions and put them all together and we could have one really good super religion, At first, that kind of makes sense. It sounds logical, unless you really think about it, okay? If God has the right way, and he says, this is who I am, and this is the way I want to be worshiped, and if I add to that something else, it's not going to make it better. It's like if you had a glass of pure water, and you mixed it with some muddy water, it doesn't get purer, does it? It gets muddy, and that's what was going on, and so God rebuked them for that. Syncretism is bad, in other words, and so those were the three major sins of the Israelites, why God allowed the Babylonians to come in and scatter them, but now God is going to punish those nations because of how much, how mean they were, how they went overboard in what they were doing and because of their evil hearts, Uh, So that's what we're seeing here. But that brings up one last question. Does God punish his people? He does, doesn't he? You know, according to Hebrews chapter 12, if you're one of his kids, he does punish you. Uh, And in fact, if you're getting away with murder, according to Hebrews chapter 12, that's kind of evidence that you're not one of his kids. (laughs) if you're wondering why do I I step out of line just a little bit, wham, but other people getting away with myrrh, it's because God loves you. That's a good thing, isn't it? Okay, yes, God does. Now, one thing we don't want to get wrong here, okay, because this is not what's called retribution theology, all right, Uh, the, the friends of Job, had embraced what's called retribution theology. That's the belief that says, okay, God blesses you when you do good. He punishes you when you do bad. Therefore, if something bad happens to you, it must have been God punishing you because you did something bad. But that's not necessarily true, is it? There's other factors involved when you read the book of Job. There is a devil who hates us. There's also a messed up world that we live in. So sometimes when bad things happen to us, it's not because we were doing anything wrong. It's because of the messed up world we live in. And the promise we're going to see here in just a moment is that God is going to change everything and make it right, okay? But... God does sometimes punish his kids, and that's, the, that's what we're seeing happening here, God punishing his people, the Jewish people. Uh, and, but then he has compassion on them, as we saw last week, and now he's gonna turn and punish the bad guys, the bullies, all right? And that's where we get to verses 20 and 21, and he speaks of those four craftsmen. And uh, the craftsmen, it says, have come to terrify them to cut off the horns of the nations that raised a horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So if the horn represents their strength, he's gonna cut it off. He's going to destroy them. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. Let me read uh, Stephen Rummage again. He says, perhaps the vision of the four craftsmen is meant to evoke the idea that just as a craftsman does his work slowly, carefully, and skillfully, so God skillfully works his justice in his own time. Also, sometimes we understand the work of a craftsman once it is finished. In the same way, God's ultimate justice will only be fully understood when time is drawn to a close and God's purposes are complete. Uh, and so that's, he is going to bring this ultimate justice, but not necessarily right away is the point of using them as craftsmen. Also, Zechariah speaks about this. He says, in response to Zechariah's question about what the craftsmen will do, the Lord first repeats what the four horns have done, then explains that the craftsmen have come to destroy the horns Consequently, all who arrogantly seek to persecute God's people and in so doing oppose the Lord himself face ruin. It will come about. Justice will be served. I want us to notice three things here in this second part. The first is that God's promise to Abraham is kept. Now, if you remember back in Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, he promised to bless Abraham, to give him kids, to make him a great nation, and also to be a blessing to all nations through the Israelites. All of those things came true, especially through Jesus Christ. But one of the things that stick out that we see occurring here in this passage, it says that God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who hold you in contempt. So in other words, those who are blessing the people of God, and remember last week we saw, and we'll see again this week, God's people are the Jewish people and the church. We've been grafted in, so we together are the people of God. So God will bless those who bless God's people, okay? But he will curse (laughs) those who are opposed to God's people. And so that's what's going on here. That's what we see here. I think of the nation of Israel right now. The Arab countries around Israel are languishing, especially Gaza. We hear about them, Gaza. They're almost starving there. They're languishing when their neighbor is flourishing. Why? It's because they're opposed to them. God is cursing them. That's what we're seeing. It seems to be pretty obvious. They're shooting bombs over at Israel. And instead of saying, I wonder what they're doing that's right. And they could perhaps learn from them. that They have this uh, system of, uh, of uh, drip uh, watering their p- plants. And so this desert has become a, a, a flourishing You know, place of of vegetables and fruits and everything in Israel, the Arab, Jordan, all these other—they could do the same thing, couldn't they? But instead, it's like we don't like those guys, you know. And so we see this. This is God. Uh, He's saying, God's promise to Abraham is kept. I will bless those who bless you. And I think, in part, that's why the United States is blessed because. Uh, at least in the past, we have uh, been in at least helping Israel. That doesn't mean we advocate everything they do, because right now they're not even following Jesus. So, but they are still God's people. God's promise to Abraham is kept. And and by the way, secondly, we also see here Satan hates Israel and the church. He hates them. Uh, this is clearly seen throughout the scriptures, clearly seen throughout the world. Let me remind you, we are the people of God together, okay? God has called Israel, and, and and he likens them to an olive tree. Now, some of the branches, when they rejected Jesus as Messiah, they were broken off. But then Gentiles, who believed in Jesus Messiah, they were grafted in, Romans 11. That's what that whole passage, I wish we could spend a, couple days on Romans chapter 11 to really sink it in. But I do want you to look at Romans 11, verse 29, I think it is, just one verse here. All the way through this illustration or analogy of this olive tree, it continuously says that the nation of Israel are going to eventually be grafted back in and embrace Jesus as Messiah. I can't wait till we get to chapter 12 of Zechariah because that's where we're gonna see that take place, okay? But we're only in chapter one, so I better stop, okay? Because we see all the way through here, verse 12, verse 15, verse 20, verse uh, 25 and 26, it all says that they're going to come back someday. God isn't finished with Israel yet, and here's why. Look at verse 28. Regarding the gospel, they, speaking of the Branches of Israel, okay, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. In other words, he's got to be talking about national ethnic Israel because he calls them the enemies because they've rejected Jesus as Messiah so far, okay, for the most part. But in regard to election, Still his people, okay? Because God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. When God calls, when he elects, nothing changes that. You know, it's, uh, that's what we see here. He called them. He said, that you're my people. He will never abandon them. And that's what we're seeing here in Zechariah. That, uh, he, but, but Satan, he hates both the Jews and the church. By the way, the church did not replace Israel as God's people. We joined them. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 says. "And God is not finished with Israel yet. Um, uh, look at Jeremiah 31: 35 and 36. Jeremiah 31. By the way, it's why I love going to Israel. Uh, Because when you're there, you just, you live it, you see uh, the places where, you know, all these different things throughout the Bible took place. We're going to Israel in 2020, so mark that down. Uh, We're gonna have an interest meeting, I think, uh, the 19th, thank you, (laughs) the 19th, um, uh, concerning that. But look at this, it says Jeremiah 31, 35, this is what the Lord says, and boy, if he says it, then it's gotta be true, okay? The one who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and makes its waves roar, the Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, this is the Lord's declaration, only then will Israel's descendants cease to be a nation before me forever. Only then if we stop having sun, moon, and stars night and day. (laughs) <laughs> will Israel cease to be a nation before me now they've been removed from their land actually a couple different times seventy a d the Romans came and wiped him out, and I think that was because they rejected Jesus as messiah, but they're back in their homeland. What do you know <laughs> okay and uh because of God's election his promise he is not finished with Israel yet. Jesus said the same thing in matthew twenty three 37 through 39. Well, but we do see, because Satan hates Israel and the church, anti-Semitism, the hatred of Israel, uh, of Jewish people, and persecution of the church are on the rise. Just today, in the paper again, there was, uh, you know, Gaza's been shooting more bombs over at Israel. But also, right here in the United States, anti-Semitism is getting worse and worse. There was an article in the, in the news that said uh, clearly, and in fact, they've done studies, uh, those uh, hate crimes, okay? Hate crimes, three different groups experience these hate crimes. And by the way, all hate crimes are evil, right? Three different groups the top group the, by far experiencing the most hate crimes is the Jewish people, yet you hardly ever hear about it. By far, and by far, the second group is Christians if you're looking at the world, in the world. And, by, and then third, a distant third, is Muslims. And yet that's what you see over and over and over again is the third group, but not the first two mentioned there. And that's because Satan doesn't want you to know. He wants everybody to hate Jewish people and to hate the church. Okay, Now, if we do stuff that deserve to be hated, then shame on us, right? (laughs) Okay, so stop it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right, now I'll tell you. We'll see our response a little bit later in the message, okay? But anti-Semitism and persecution of the church are on the rise. And by the way, that was predicted. Matthew twenty-four nine. Jesus predicted it. Book of Revelation twelve verses thirteen through seventeen. John predicted it. That in the end of time, the the hatred both towards the Jewish people and the church will rise, okay? Uh, And so that's what we're seeing today. Perhaps we're getting close to the end. Uh, The third thing, though, uh, I said notice three things here in these craftsmen. The third thing is that God will bring ultimate justice in the end. I want you to imagine a world where no one ever cheats another person again or ever hurts another person again. Hmm. That's going to be glorious. And it's not fiction. It's going to happen at the return of the king. That's his promise. Utopia is coming at the return of the king. So three lessons on justice. Justice that we can gain from this. First of all, the eschatological focus. We cannot forget this, that he's not saying to the Jewish people at that time, tomorrow, it's all gonna be okay. He wasn't saying that. The book of Zechariah, as we walk through it, we're gonna see that he is talking about the initial time period of the Jews at that time, but he's also focusing out To the time period of Jesus' first coming, we'll see several passages in Zechariah that predict Jesus' first coming, but then also all the way out to his second coming. And Zechariah is not crystal clear on all of that. We have the New Testament, though, to help make clarity of it on how it all works out. So keep that eschatological focus in mind. Kind of interesting, the Babylonians, Babylon was already defeated by the time of Zechariah, by the Persians, but not destroyed. In fact, the Jewish people continue to live in Babylon even in the 6th century A.D. But Babylon is a symbol of the enemies of God, all the enemies of God in the book of Revelation. That's uh, the symbol of all the enemies of God, which Zechariah is deeply connected to, as we'll see. Zechariah deeply connected to the book of Revelation. But secondly, God is responsible for vengeance, not us. This is where we very much need to listen, okay? God is responsible for vengeance, not us. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. And this is kind of where it's, it's sad sometimes when you see some Christians, usually a small minority, but they end up getting in the news all the time. I'm not sure how. But, uh, but Romans, well, I do know how, never mind. Romans 12, <laughs> verses 19 through 21. Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. God is the one who does it, not us. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Jesus made it very clear. Love your enemies. Pray for them. That means you're, we're supposed to pray that God will bless them, that God will give them a good life and make things go well for them. We're supposed to do good to them, help them in their time of need. That's what Jesus said, Okay? So I know that's hard, but that's, what, that's our response. God, if you really have faith, you trust that God will take care of it. I'm not supposed to. God is the judge. And God sometimes judges even now, okay? There is going to be this ultimate judgment at the end, but God does sometimes judge even now. And also, I would say, we should seek justice as much as possible, without forgetting that the spread of the gospel is our priority. When we spread the gospel and lives are changed, that's how we're going to make a difference ultimately in the world. So God will bring ultimate justice in the end. Sin is bad, and God is good. He is jealous for his people, which moves him to have compassion on them and to punish their enemies. God loves us. And do you know the depth of the meaning of that truth? I want to finish with an illustration from Stephen Mosley's book, God, a biography. And he gives a, an illustration of a true story back in the 1850s in Armenia. And I want to read this because there's, this story brings out three major truths that we've seen in our passage here. Listen to this story. Ephim was known as the boy prophet in Caracalla, a village of cattle herders nestled amid the rocky foothills of Mount Ararat. He'd shown a gift for prayer and fasting from early childhood. At the age of 11, Ephim was called to one of his long prayer vigils. This one lasted seven days and seven nights, and this one produced a vision. Sitting in his little stone cottage, he saw before him charts and a message in beautiful handwriting. F.M. asked for pen and paper. His parents wondered why the boy could neither read nor write. But he proceeded to copy down the letter shapes and the diagrams that passed before him. He wrote it all down sitting on the rough plank table where the family ate. When the village readers looked at the finished manuscript, they discovered the illiterate child had written out in perfect Russian a series of instructions and warnings. At some future time, every Christian in Caracalla would be in terrible danger. Thousands of men, women, and children would be murdered. At that time, everyone must flee to a land across the sea. The boy also indicated exactly where they were to go. Although he'd never seen a geography book, he drew a recognizable outline of the Atlantic Ocean and the east coast of the United States. Fifty years later, just after the turn of the century, Ephim, the aging boy prophet, announced that the time had come. We must flee to America. All who remain here will perish Not everyone in Caracalla wanted to pull up roots from their ancestral lands, but some heeded Etham's word, packed up their belongings, and began the long journey to America. In 1914, the time of horror came. Turks drove two-thirds of the Armenian population into the Mesopotamian desert. Over a million men, women, and children perished during these death marches. Half a million more were butchered in their villages. Those from Caracalla who had escaped the Holocaust wept for their slain countrymen and thanked God. They listened at that critical moment when the all-seeing one shared his wisdom. And when you hear that story, three things come to mind in, in view of our passage. First of all, the enemy hates God's people. He hates them. He slaughtered a million and a half Armenians. Turkey has never repented of the slaughter of these people and that is despicable. And they need to be called to repentance. That's all there is to it. This was horrible. Ultimate justice doesn't come until the return of the king. Bad things happen even to God's people. But third, God does act in our behalf. Sometimes incredible, miraculous things can take place if we're seeking him, if we're open to him. And so we cry out for revival. We say, God, do it again. Heal the sick. Give people dreams and visions set free those in the bondage of addictions save the lost god do it again whatever's gonna happen i know he's got my back and i know he's gonna see me through but i'll tell you what i don't want to live a boring casual life do you yeah no good good let's pray Father, we look at this book and there's good and there's bad things happening in this world and it does seem like everything's messed up, but you are clearly still in control. So we seek you even when we don't understand everything. And we lean on you because we have these promises that you're going to set everything right. dare not find ourselves on the wrong side so help us to love even our persecutors to be kind to everybody on the planet and to make a difference oh God come do your work in us we pray and thank you that you do have our back in Jesus name amen let's stand and worship god